to another AIC NSW Conveyancing Conversation. The podcast series brings you the latest in case law, legislative updates and conveyancing practice from a select group of experts in the field. In the second of two episodes on practice risk management, Margaret Collier continues the conversation with Peter Moran. A partner at Colin Biggers & Paisley, Peter has over 30 years' experience in insurance, reinsurance and commercial litigation. His expertise includes the defence of claims against various classes of professionals, as well as in general liability litigation. Peter regularly conducts training sessions for regional real estate and legal practitioners on good practice and risk management. Earlier we were discussing what to do where there were multiple clients but sometimes it's actually difficult to sort out who your client actually is. How essential is it to manage this situation and what's the best way to manage it? The person that actually makes the first communication will not necessarily be your client. In a conveyancing context, if you're, if you're the son or daughter of elderly parents and you have a relationship with a particular conveyancer or you've used that conveyancer, so you'll get the phone call saying, oh, by the way, mum and dad want to sell their, their house, can you act in it? And you might get some initial information from that person. But you have to, during the course of that discussion, say, look, I will, I will obtain from you over the phone now some initial details about, about the property, but I need to see your parents. They will be my clients. You're, in effect, the introducer, but I need to document a retainer arrangement with your parents. Now, if you've reached a position where you have your parents have given you authority pursuant to a power of attorney, that's different. I can actually go another a couple of steps further with you. But at the end of the day, I need, I need to inform you that you are not the client. Same with the selling agent. I've just negotiated the sale. I've advised the purchasers that they should see you. Here's what they want. Again, you need to say, well, I'm making a note of what you're telling me, but I will be confirming all of this with the purchasers, purchaser, when and if they instruct me. No, no, you don't need to do all that. I'm telling you what they want. Well, that's that's your assessment, but you're not the client. So again, you've just got to put your sensible face on and say, well, I will be confirming all of this in writing. The other problem that can occur is that you have an unrepresented opponent. Now, that can be a problem in a conveyancing context. It happens more often than what it should. Um, and there's been a particular case that I was involved in concerning a property lawyer in the Queanbeyan area. It was a, um, a plan of subdivision. So the purchaser had bought off the plan. There was then a delay in the development. The purchaser is acting for himself. He continuously communicates with the lawyer for the vendor. What's happening with the delays? When's this going to, when's this going to occur? When's that going to occur? When's the plan going to go in? So all of these questions just kept coming into this lawyer's inbox. And the lawyer responded because, firstly, his vendor client didn't want to lose this guy as a purchaser. And secondly, he just thought he was being polite. I'm just answering his, his inquiries. But of course, when the transaction goes belly up, the unrepresented purchaser then sues the vendor's lawyer. So the lawyer is sued not by the client, but by the, by the opponent. The problem there is that courts have said over the years that in these circumstances, you can owe a duty to someone who's not your client. But it has to do with assumption of responsibility. In that circumstance, the more that you communicate with the unrepresented opponent, the more you're giving that person the thought that you're also looking after their interests. Now, to someone who's not a property professional, they might say, well, that's ridiculous. 
but that's that's the impression that they're getting. I, I email questions to this lawyer, uh, or in our case, I email questions to this conveyancer, and they keep giving me answers, and they know that I'm relying upon the answers. So you can find yourself at the end of a at the end of a lawsuit by someone who's in fact the opponent in the transaction. So what do you do to avoid that? You make it very clear when you start to get these inquiries or the phone calls that you are acting for the vendor. To the extent that I'm authorised by my client to give you information, I will. Outside of that, I can't assist you. I'm not trying to be rude, but my obligation is to my vendor client. You've asked me a number of questions about the development uh, or about the vendor, about when it's all going to settle or the like, but I can't answer your inquiries. I'm not trying to be rude, but I do not act for you. So you, you, you should not rely upon what I tell you. You've chosen to act for yourself and that's your decision, but I am not your lawyer. I am not your conveyancer. So you've just got to make it clear. And if, there is, if there's persistence, then you need to confirm that in writing. I think, because otherwise you will find yourself at the end of these assertions that, well, you actually kept answering all of my inquiries, so therefore you owed a duty to me. So if you were to state something like, I'm answering your questions as if you were the legal representative for mm. any legal representative for a purchaser and no further, that would probably cover you? I think so. What if, for instance, what if, for instance, this unrepresented purchaser said, look, I just want to let you know that I've got funding through XYZ Proprietary Limited and... If this settlement doesn't occur by the end of this financial year, that funding will cease and I'll have to get much more expensive funding from somewhere else. And you're there making a note of all of that, right? Then the argument can be raised, I told, I told this conveyancer what my funding arrangements were and I said that I had, we had to settle within it by a certain date. So the more, the more you receive that type of information, the worse, you can be, the worse position you can be in because you're really putting yourself in the shoes of their lawyer as well. So you need to say, I don't... I don't need to know your funding arrangements. You are not my client. But you're, you're the nearest professional. So if you've allowed a line of communication to be opened up, they'll use it. So at the same time, wouldn't that be the same as a communication from the other practitioner saying if settlement doesn't take place by the due date, my client will suffer damages and mm. will be making a claim? And you would say, thank you, noted, but I'm not in a position to advise you as to whether or not that deadline will be met or not. Right. So you make your own inquiries about finance. So you can, yeah, if, if, it's the, if it's similar to the type of inquiry you would get from your opponent, fine, answer it. But in that very official way. So answer it in the same way as you would answer it if, if, they, were, if they were legally represented. Yes. And I, I have to say, I struggle with this kind of situation, trying to, in my mind, to what degree am I helping this person on a personal level? To what degree am I talking to the person acting for the purchaser? on the other side of the transaction and trying to find where the line is. And I find it very difficult to establish where that line is in mm. my mind. Another example is who works out the uh, settlement adjustment figures. If in the, in the particular transaction that we're talking about, it's not your obligation, it's the obligation of the, of the, of the opposing lawyer. But if they're unrepresented, they say, Look, I, don't know, I, don't, I have no idea how to do this. Can you do it for me? Mm. And you say to yourself, well, I'll do it even though it's not my obligation to do it, I'll do it because it's helping the transaction move towards a settlement. Mm. But that's, again, you're in red flag territory because then they will say, well, I relied upon you to get these figures right and they weren't right. You would say, well, hang on, I only did it for you as a favour because it was really your obligation. So again, you've just got to make sure that you're not crossing a line. Now, sometimes you'll be asked to interact with people who aren't strictly your 
client. What are your responsibilities there? Well, you need to firstly get the authorization to act, but you might have someone, for instance, who comes into your office and they have a peripheral role in the transaction. For instance, there might be a caveat that they've lodged on title or, or something of that nature. Firstly, you've got to make sure that you go through identity checks for that person. Then you've got to, then you've got to think to yourself, does this person have the same interest as my principal client? So you want, for instance, you want a caveat withdrawn. So your primary client brings in the caveator and says, this person has lodged a caveat. It may well be the wife or the family member or the like. It's not necessarily in the interests of that person to withdraw the caveat. But nevertheless, they're there standing in front of you saying, yeah, sure, I'll fine, I'll withdraw it. It's in the interests of your primary client to have that caveat withdrawn because they want the settlement to proceed. So you've immediately got the potential for a conflict. So the interest of your client, caveat withdrawn. The interest of this caveator, who is not your client, not to have the caveat withdrawn. Do you need to firstly see them separately? So don't see them together. You need to say to the, if you like, the secondary client, I'll call them that, the caveator in this case, you need to establish that they are also authorising you to act. You need to say to them that in those circumstances, there is a conflict between your position and the position of my other client, and that in those circumstances, it's best if they get independent legal advice. You need to then explain to them what that actually means. A lot of people say independent legal advice, and most clients say, yeah, I understand that, don't need that. But they don't really understand what the necessity for independent legal advice in those circumstances. So firstly, you need to get, assuming you've moved beyond that point, verification of identity from that person, and you need to then properly advise that person as to, as to what they're about to do. Then you have the other problem of then speaking to your primary client, because now you've got two clients whose interests are not identical, you have duties of confidentiality to each. So you can't say to this one, oh, look, I've just spoken to this woman and she says it's fine to remove the caveat for the following reasons because that's breaching an obligation of confidentiality. So it does, it does lead to a lot of issues for that lawyer for, or that conveyancer. In a perfect world, you say to the person who's, who's just been introduced to you, I'm sorry, I can't act for you. You'll have to get independent advice. Now... Your primary client is going to be annoyed because if settlement is due that day, it's probably going to blow settlement out of the water for that day. My view, too bad. This has occurred at the last minute. If the caveat has been improperly lodged in the first place and your primary client suffers a loss, then they have a cause of action against the caveator. But again, we were talking about before about the state of urgency that often exists, especially on the day of settlement where things can be, blown, can be thrown up in the air at the last minute. You've got to make sure that you don't allow yourself to be thrown into the client's urgency or the client's panic because you're the professional. You've actually got to step back from that panic. And the court will, will say, and I've heard judges say this, I understand the clients were annoyed or the clients were insisting on this being done urgently or the, or the client wanting to do that or why can't you just act for both of them. I understand why they would want that, but I expect more from you. You're the lawyer or you're the conveyancer, I, you're the professional, so I expected more from you in that circumstance. They don't want, they, the, the courts will be very annoyed if you step into that, to that shoe of panic. 
in that circumstance. I actually had one where there was a caveat on a title, you know, just before settlement and the solicitor, this was the solicitor that worked down the road from us, he called his client and said, oh, we can't settle today. There's a caveat on the title by this person and he goes oh that's my wife you know we're we're in the middle of a divorce property was in the husband's name alone so she put a caveat on the title to to either stuff up the settlement or because she had a genuine interest in the property don't know which but the husband client said to him oh okay leave it with me I'll, I'll I'll try and talk to her anyway about two hours later he called back and he said okay I've spoken with her and we've made another arrangement um, what can we do to get the settlement back on for today because this happened about 10 in the morning and so they rescheduled the settlement for 3.30 and he said well look I can do up the withdrawal of caveat uh, if she can come in and sign it you know we can still get this settlement to happen I will say that this was sort of back in the 80s late 80s early 90s mm. so people were a little bit laxer then anyway so the guy came in brought in his wife and he said okay look I don't act for you but if you are willing to, here's the withdrawal of caveat. This will take the caveat off the title so that the settlement happens this afternoon. He said, you know, do you understand that? And she said, yes, yes, I understand. I, You know, I'm not happy, but, you know, I don't think I've got any choice. Obviously, he's going to have problems if I don't do it. And, you know, my divorce lawyers told me, blah, blah, blah. And she was pretty pissed off about the whole thing. <laughs> anyway, so she signed the withdrawal and the settlement happened couple of days later, irate woman storms into the solicitor's office. It had been the, gu- the guy's new girlfriend who had come yeah. in. That sort of thing happens and people don't question it because mm. this person isn't their client. They don't do VOI on them and they just think, oh, great, I've got the, se- I've got the settlement across the line. So that's why I wanted to address it. Um, earlier we were speaking about how difficult it is sometimes to leave work in the office and not sort of be helpful in social situations. It can be really difficult at lunches or parties not to answer general questions, but it's very dangerous, isn't it? Uh, it is, and um, a lot of property professionals, lawyers and conveyances have been caught. Um, I can give you three quick case examples. Firstly, the um, the trip to Dunny-Doo, as I call it. Lawyer and client become quite close friends. Lawyer takes client on a road trip to Dunny-Doo where the, um, where the client grew up. They're in the car. The lawyer gets a phone call in the car from another client whinging about how his finance is falling through for a particular project. It's on loudspeaker. So the lady who's on her way to Dunny-Doo basically pipes up and says, I can help out there. I've got, you know, she was quite a wealthy woman. I can help out there. I can give you finance. They've never met. This is just a phone call in the car. Lawyer says, look, if you two want to talk to each other about giving finance, that's a matter between the two of you, but I don't want to become involved. So after the trip finishes, the lady does in fact give finance to this other other person, but sends the money to the law firm, so deposits the money into the lawyer's trust account. The lawyer then passes it on to the other client. No documentation, right? You can probably see where this is headed. The the financing fails, the project fails, so the lady who was on her way to Dunny Do, she then sues the lawyer, saying, you knew that I was having a conversation with one of your other clients, and you received the money into my trust account, into your trust account, which you then passed on. You had an obligation to advise me about the strength of this person's development. So it's an example of a situation where you're becoming embroiled in a claim because you gave 
in that case, he gave no advice, but he allowed two people to have a conversation in his presence, and they both knew that he was listening to it. So they both assumed that he's there looking after their interests. So that was a social setting that's, that's, that's gone wrong. The other one involved what I call the uncle's development. So acting on the sale of a residential unit, Vendor comes in the day before settlement saying, I'm flying off to LA tomorrow. I want you to put the proceeds of sale into this, into this account. It's my uncle's account. He's a developer. He's developing this project. And he's given me this paperwork about the project. Can you have a look at it? This is the day before settlement. This is a, a, a sole practitioner who only did residential conveyancing for close friends and said, I don't know anything about this development or development generally. Just have a look at it and just make sure that it looks all okay. So when I interviewed this, this lawyer, she said, I, and I asked her the question, well, what did you do? And she said, I just had a quick, I, I literally just flicked through it and said, yeah, it looks okay. The client says, look, it's my uncle. Everything's fine. Put the money into the uncle's account. So you can, again, you can probably tell where this is headed. Uh, settlement goes ahead. Money goes into the uncle's account and it just gets um, dissipated. So the lawyer is sued by the, by the vendor. But the same issue is you're giving advice that wasn't a social setting, it was in the office, but it was almost like a social setting in the sense that because there was this urgency, I've got to, I can't, I've got to leave, I've got to, I've got to make my way to the airport, I've got to, I've, I'm flying out, just have a quick look at it. You need to say, no, I, I don't have a quick look at anything. If you want me to give advice about this development, firstly, it's not my area of expertise. So secondly, I will refer it off if you wish to another lawyer in another firm who does have expertise in this area. But he or she will not be able to give you advice before settlement tomorrow. What should have happened is a very clear either email or letter saying, I have not looked at the documentation referable to the development. It is not my area of expertise. I give you no advice about the prudence of that investment whatsoever. If your instructions are to give the sale proceeds to your uncle, I will implement that instruction. But I will not give you advice about the, about the development. And the third example is, again, giving advice on the run. Client needs to get out of a franchise agreement. The franchise agreement, by its provisions, has a formula for escaping the agreement, and there was a a deadline, a date deadline, and that date deadline was that day. So lawyer gets a phone call from from the client. He's out and about, phone call on his mobile. I've decided to get out of this franchise agreement. On my reading of it, I have to do blah, 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 blah by five o'clock this evening. I'm not in my office. Yes, I know that. But you, you acted for me when I entered into this franchise agreement. I need, I need to know how to get out of this franchise agreement. I need to know now. So lawyer, I would say probably foolishly, then says, well, I think you need to do A, B, C, and D. Of course, A, B, C, and D was not, was not the correct way to, to approach it. So the client then, get, then gets sued by the, by the franchisor. And then he in turn sues the lawyer. So what you need to say in that circumstance is, I'm not in my office. I do not have the franchise agreement with me. It's a lengthy, complex document. Without being critical, you have left it until today to advise me as to what the mechanics are of getting it out of this franchise. That requires careful consideration, which I cannot give this afternoon, and I won't give it because I'll look at, I'll go back to my office, I'll examine it, and I'll give you advice as soon as I can, but it will not be today. Cranky client, too bad. You just have to say, I'm sorry, I cannot give you, I won't give you advice on the run. I'm a professional. I will give you the advice carefully and appropriately when I can, and I will do it as soon as I can. But if if what I'm saying to you means that you don't get to escape the franchise agreement this afternoon, I can't help you with that. So again, 
you're in a you're in a, not so much a social setting, but you're just not in your office. And this is where a lot of lawyers fall into the trap of, of saying, "Well, I think the answer is X, Y, Z." This is this is giving advice on the fly and succumbing to time pressures that really the clients, to my mind, really doesn't have a right to put on you. Shouldn't. That's right. You do get pushy clients who will, and and they might say, for instance, look. I and my company give your firm $500,000 worth of legal fees every year. I'm expecting you to give me an answer. That's commercial pressure. And many people uh, will succumb to that commercial pressure. They, they shouldn't. In fact, if I was the client, I'd be more impressed by a lawyer that actually pushed back and said, no, I want to give you proper, careful advice. But you do get the pushy clients. Uh, more often than not, they seem to be developers who are, are insistent and they want a compliant lawyer or a compliant conveyancer. So you'll find that, you, in effect, you become their legal slave mm. where they, they, they expect, because they express this kind of crankiness over the phone, that you'll, that you'll jump every time they say jump. That's yeah. a bad relationship to have mm-hmm. and it'll end up in tears. You'll end up being sued. It's easy for me to say turn your back on a $500,000 a year client, but I think you've got to make sure that you retain your professionalism in that circumstance. Harder and harder with all the different ways in which you can communicate with professional advisors nowadays, mm. with mobiles and the like and, and emails. Imagine trying to ring, for instance, your, your heart surgeon at 11 o'clock at night, saying, look, I, you know, I'm not feeling 100%. What are the prospects of actually getting through and getting advice from that, from that doctor? Answer, nil. Mm. So why do we do it? Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, they, they, they will say, no, no, you'll come in and see me and we'll have a proper consultation and I'll give you the benefit of my professional advice at that point. But it just seems that we, we get sucked into this, this aura of panic and giving advice on the run, where most other professionals don't do it, rightly so. One of the other aspects of time pressures, of course, is the ability to skip over things and miss fine details. I can remember when I first started um, in a legal office, I had a lovely old partner who always said to me, check, check, check again. And if I presented anything to him, he would ask me, have you checked this three times before presenting it to me? And it's always stuck with me. How often do time pressures um, create problems with uh, fine details and ending up with people being sued because they've missed something important? Mm, Often. And the the thing to do is not to panic because without wanting to be too blase about it, you are insured. And that's why you have professional indemnity insurance. So if we're, and we're not robots. We all make mistakes from time to time. If you if you see that a mistake has been made, then again, the main the main thing to do is to, is not to panic. If it's something that could lead to a claim being made against you, you need to advise your client. The PI policy does not permit you to make admissions, so don't make admissions. But you advise your client of the issue, and you recommend that they get independent advice. So you you're stepping you're stepping away from it. If it ends up being a claim, so be it. That's why you've got you've got PI coverage. But what people tend to do is the worst case scenario is lying to your client and saying no, no, it's not what you think; it's something else. There was a uh, quite a significant case against an accounting firm that actually readjusted all the figures, so the client was tendering for a significant multi-million dollar bus service. The client saw that there was a discrepancy, went back to the accounting firm, and the accounting firm basically fiddled with the figures and said, no, 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 these are the figures that you gave us to start with, so it's all your fault. You've given us the wrong figures. That's why you're losing money. In fact, the accountant had just changed the figures. So the problem with that is that when that all came to light and it was clear that the client had been lied to, they were sued not just for negligence but for deceit. And the level of damages was much higher than what it would have been if it was just a negligence claim. 
And what's more, because the accounting firm had acted fraudulently, that also imperiled their PI cover. And it's, and it's panic. You've got a, cli- a client with a multi-million dollar deal. You might be the lead partner on that project. You don't want to be the subject of a, of a negligence claim. You don't want to have to fess up to your fellow partners that you've been the subject of a, of a claim or that you've lost a client. So in that panic state, you lie. What should have happened was there's been an error in the figures. It looks like we were responsible for, the, for, that, for that error. Recommend that you get independent advice. If that led to even a multi-million dollar claim against that firm, it would still be covered by their PI arrangements, freshly indemnity arrangements. Whereas if you try to cover it up or you lie, you're turning a claim that might be indemnifiable to a claim that's not indemnifiable and suddenly your own personal assets are exposed simply because you've tried to cover something up. You need to act against human nature. And what I mean by that is if somebody accuses you of negligence and you look at your file and you think, oh, well, I could have done that better, you can sometimes react angrily to an allegation that you haven't done your job properly. That's, that's just normal human nature. You've got to be able to step back from that and say, well, I, can, I see where you're coming from. I'm not admitting that I've done anything wrong, but you need to get independent advice. So don't stand there and, and argue with your client and fight about it. And the other thing, again, it's, it's, it's human nature, I guess, and that is you see the mistake, you want to try and correct the mistake. So you're tempted, you shouldn't, but you're then tempted to, dis- to falsify documents so that your, your error is not exposed to the world at large. So you've, you've got to fight against those two elements of human nature because, as I said, and as I've repeated a number of times, you are the professional. The courts expect you to act as a professional. But they also realise that from time to time, mistakes will be made. Mm. Get, getting back to the realities of acting as a licensed conveyancer, contact the institute, advise as to what's occurred, more often than not, you'll be, you'll be advised that you should notify the insurer. Then the insurer will look after the claim and you can go on and do other things. Now, even if the claim is successful and you have to pay a policy excess or whatever the case may be, that's fine, but you haven't, you haven't imperiled your, your whole business or damaged your reputation or whatever. It's just, it's just something that I think sometimes human nature forces people into situations where they do try to do things like cover up and they really shouldn't because it is an industry where A, you will be the subject of claims from time to time, and B, you will make mistakes. Mm. We'd all like to think that we're careful and that we don't make mistakes, but I'm afraid that we will. (laughs) Yes, I had a call from a member a few weeks back, and she was really upset that she thought that she was going to get a claim made against her, and she didn't think she'd done anything wrong. And she said, but what really burns me is that I was so determined that I was never, ever going to have a claim made against (laughs) me. And I can remember somebody saying to me when I first started at AIC, if you haven't had a claim made against you, you haven't been doing it long enough. (laughs) (laughs) So that's probably right. What you do find this more amongst lawyers than than conveyances, um, and usually the older lawyers who who will say, I've never had a claim made against me. It's all, you know, the up here. They've just been lucky. Mm. Or that they spent most of their professional life in an era where people didn't make claims against professional people. Mm. I mean, you go back 50 years, no one would dare sue their doctor, for instance. You know, doctor is a trusted professional. You know, they can make mistakes. Now consumers are much more aware of their rights and they're much more likely to challenge what advice they've been given or the quality of professional services they've been given. So don't uh, feel that you're going to go through your professional life in this perfect world where you'll never have a complaint or a claim because that's just unrealistic. Mm. It's 
knowing that that's going to happen, and the whole purpose of, of today was to try and think about ways in which you might conduct yourself and your practice in a way that minimises the risk of a claim. Mm. But the other thing about risk management is assuming that you have a claim made against you, how do we move on from that? And the answer is you can, because insurance is there to, to look after that. If you, you learn, if you've committed an error and you learn from that moving forward and you teach people in your business about, well, I, I made this error once, fess up and say, look, I, I did this once and it, it caused a claim, but I now do this so that I'm actually a better practitioner for it moving forward and learn from people, not just, not just like me, but other, other conveyances who are in the subject of claims. The more experienced conveyances should be teaching the younger ones, look, yeah, these, these, these can be traps, these can be problems. You will get the cranky client who will demand things just before settlement, but you've mm. got to let them explain how they dealt with that particular problem. Mm. I thought I'd wind up today with a question for the benefit of the business owners out there um, who may not be aware about how, what their responsibility as a business owner is for the actions of their employees, even when the employee is acting outside the firm. Yes, vicarious liability. You are vicariously liable for the acts or omissions of your employees committed within the course of their employment, which sounds like a sentence of legal jargon and, and, it, and it kind of is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> essentially, there have been a couple of cases where one in particular, one very unfortunate young woman, a junior lawyer in a law firm, was harassed by her brother into documenting a loan agreement outside work. So didn't tell her boss about the arrangement, did her own drafting on her own home computer, saw both the lender and the borrower together. As I say, she was, she was being harassed quite severely by her brother. She was the lawyer. The, brother's, the brother has no legal qualification whatsoever. So the transaction is documented. It all falls apart. And she and the law firm are both sued. Now, the, the partner of the law firm says, well, I didn't authorise any of this. I had no knowledge of it whatsoever. So I'm not, I'm not liable for her actions. I'm not vicariously liable for her actions because this was committed outside the course of her employment. And he was successful in that argument. In other words, it's just not something that he was responsible for. Now, from a risk management point of view, he probably should have had an employment contract in place or a schedule of duties. And you see it often in law firms, but in conveyancing practices where there's there's more than one uh, person or you're employing conveyances, you should think about this as well. What you are authorised to do, but more importantly, what you're not authorised to do, and you're not authorised to do private transactions outside the firm. So even though you have a conveyancing qualification and your mother or your cousin or something says, look, you're a conveyancer, can you do this for me? It doesn't have to go through the firm, just do it you know, outside the firm. There's a, there's a temptation and you will be asked to do these kind of things from time to time. You've got to say, well, no, I can't for a couple of reasons. Firstly, you need the professionalism of the firm that I work for to assist you with this. That's reason number one. Reason number two is, yes, you'll, you'll, you'll pay fees. I can't do things pro bono, but you'll have a transaction that's properly done. Thirdly, if anything goes wrong, and even though you're my cousin and we love each other dearly, you are, you'll end up suing me and I'll have no insurance coverage because my insurance coverage only indemnifies me for errors or omissions that I commit in the firm, not work that I do outside the firm. So getting back to this, this example of this young lady, the firm was not liable. She was liable personally because she had badly documented this agreement and so she was personally sued. And she had assets in her own name. So a young, a young lady, I think she was in her 20s, fairly 
I was going to say viciously, maybe that's a too harsh a word, but she, was, she, she had a lot of pressure imposed upon her by this older brother to do this transaction, and she gave into that pressure. Mm. And she's now the subject of, uh, she was in the subject of a claim against her for which she had no insurance coverage, and she probably imperiled her career as well. So it's a very sad case in a lot of, in a lot of ways, but it just, you just got to go back and uh, resist that. And as, I, as I've said and repeated a number of times, you've, you've, got to, you've got to be the professional in the room and you've got to say, no, I can't do it for those reasons. But yes, that does uh, happen from time to time. Employment contracts are a good idea. Sometimes if you know the person well or if you've, if you've been associated for some time, you, you can step, step away from that type of formality. But it's always good risk management to have it in place, to have an employment contract in place and a statement of duties in place. You don't want to imperil your insurance arrangements by doing work outside the practice. And... You can also be the subject of disciplinary action, which you don't you don't want as well. So, for those reasons, being a business owner has its own has its own responsibilities. There've been a couple of disciplinary claims, certainly against um, partners of law firms, where they have been disciplined for not properly supervising the work of their staff members. In other words, uh, a young lawyer comes on board and they just get thrown hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, say, conveyancing matters, and the larger conveyancing practices might have this as well, and they just swamped and mistakes are made or clients aren't dealt with adequately or whatever the case may be. Not only does that expose the business owner to a civil action, it could also expose them to a disciplinary action for, in effect, throwing this, this poor, these poor young people in at the deep end. If you're going to employ people, that carries with it a responsibility to properly supervise, not just, I'm paying you a sum of money, I'll just give you as much work as I, as I want to give you and I don't care whether you have a breakdown. So you can expose yourself to a disciplinary action by simply not supervising properly. Right. I've been full of all bad news today, haven't I? Um, full, of caution, full of cautionary <laughs> tales and um, probably a lot of lessons to be learned from, Hopefully, from yeah. the voice of experience. So thank you very much, Peter. You and are thank most you for welcome. Time. Most welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this AIC NSW Conveyancing Conversation. Thanks to Peter Moran and Colin Biggers and Paisley Lawyers. Your responses, ideas and suggestions can be sent to events at aicnsw.com.au. This podcast is a production of Pulley & Co. I'm Julian Pulvermacher and I look forward to your company next time. This podcast is a guide only. Nothing in this podcast is intended to be legal advice and should not be taken as legal advice. Should you require any further information on any aspect of the podcast, you should refer to AICNSW or a licensed conveyancer.